Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour. Uh, really excited about this week's episode. We're interviewing a hospitalist medicine attending, a very good friend of mine, Dr. Jared Spreckman. Uh, we went and met, we met in uh, medical school and been great friends ever since. Uh, so really excited to have you on the program here, Jared. Thanks, Banks. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Awesome. Just to give you a little back, a background on uh, Dr. Spreckman here, he's an attending hospitalist medicine physician at Alton Memorial Hospital, which is a, an affiliate of the Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. And it's part of the Barnes Jewish uh, Healthcare Network. Uh, he did his internal medicine residency at Naples Community Hospital in Naples, Florida, which is also a, a Mayo Clinic affiliate. Um, and so he's been living in the attending life now for over over a year now, I think now. Is that, is that right, Jared? Yeah, so I finished, I started in September after I took my board. So it's been almost a year, I mean, that past July, roughly about a year postgraduate, yeah. That's Crazy. awesome. <laughs> so are you working this week? Or are you off or how, what, are you, what, are you, uh, what are you up to right now? Uh, it's, a, it's the best week of the schedule because I'm off. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just, just been relaxing and, yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about and lifestyle, but yeah, just off this week, just running errands, relaxing, uh, and just enjoying the time off. So that's awesome. That's awesome. And I think, you know, some of the listeners, they may be like first and second year med students. They maybe, could you just tell us, you know, most people in medicine know what a hospitalist is, but maybe some of the the students in their younger or in their sure. earlier years, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about what a hospitalist is. Sure. So, yeah, the concept of hospital medicine got started about, I'd say, in the early 2000s, I mean, almost 20 years ago. Um, and the way medicine used to be was that your primary care physician would see you both in the hospital when you were sick, as well as in the office. But it just became, I'm not sure how the, you know, kind of dichotomy or development started, what the really trigger was. Um, but hospital medicine is strictly, you were seeing inpatients in the hospital. So you do not work in an office setting, you practice internal medicine, or family medicine of note, mostly most of the hospitals are internal, um, just, uh, just to give you a heads up, um, internal medicine, but most, it's just you do internal medicine in the hospital and you do inpatient visits, discharges, admissions, consultations. And so you manage all that inpatient landscape while your colleagues who do um, just outpatient primary care, they do the office setting. So really, it's just the split of the inpatient outpatient setting where you focus on the inpatients. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing maybe some people may confuse is like uh, a primary, like the difference between a hospital and a primary care doctor. And it sounds like from what you're saying, a primary care doctor is exclusively, especially now, maybe in the old days, something was different, exclusively outpatient uh, medicine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, are, there are a few where I've practiced before I came to um, St. Louis and still here, there are a few primary care physicians who traditionally are older in their 60s because they came from that prior model where they still do out inpatient, a few visits, maybe not on the weekends, but they do see as many of their inpatients. But I think they're just, you know, it's very, at this point in the next few years, I don't think you'll, maybe you'll see a concierge doctor come to the hospital, but mm -hmm. I'd say most healthcare systems, at least 90, 95% of the inpatient work is hospitalist and almost, you know, those primary care physicians, those outpatient internal medicine, say about you know, a few years, I'd say almost 100% and we'll just do the clinic. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think you already answered one of my other questions was so that so the training for the med students out there, it sounds like either you do an internal medicine residency or also maybe potentially family medicine residency could be a route as well. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think the benefit of the internal medicine residency is that a bulk of your training is inpatient medicine of the inpatient wards, at least half to 60%. Then you're dispersed with some consultation months, specialty, inpatient consultations, ID, cardiology, nephrology, you name it. But with the family medicine, I do have a lot of colleagues who are family medicine practitioners 
as well who uh, are just, they do just as uh, great of a job and it's just as qualified. And mm-hmm. uh, but I do, I think it does help internal medicine residency to have those few extra patient months for experience. But if you are a family medicine doctor, there's no reason why you can't, couldn't be a hospitalist as well. Sure. Sure. So there's no, it sounds like there's no fellowship or anything like that required, uh, at least on, at least on the adult side. I've heard, is it true on the pediatric side you have to do, if you want to be a pediatric hospitalist, you have to do like an extra fellowship or something like that? I can't confirm it, but from everyone I've talked to, it's, it's just, a, it is a little bit more difficult to get into PEDS hospitalist. Don't quote me, but I'm almost positive you have to do some type of fellowship and usually it's two years for PEDS, but don't quote me, but that's what I, what I've heard, I don't have a lot of colleagues here in the pediatrics, but for hospitalist medicine, I'm very thankful that you can go straight into practice. I mean, some people do do a one-year research fellowship or administrative fellowship, but they're not widely offered enough to make it a prerequisite core to go into the hospitalist medicine field. Um, I mean, there are just too many. I mean, I'd say if you have 12 people in a residency class, at least 30, 40% will do hospitalist medicine, and there's not enough fellowships to cater to that. Uh, but there are some administrative research fellowships if you want to get involved with quality improvement. But I mean, I've done some quality improvement even without a fellowship. So sure. it's definitely not a prerequisite to go in the field, but it definitely can add to your CV and that type of thing. Nice, nice. So it's just a three-year residency. That's that's nice. You can um, you can get out and out working oh, in the absolutely. world, which is which is great. You're not like me stuck in residency forever. <laughs> or our, uh, our... it's 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 it uh, definitely was one of the reasons I chose it as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can understand that. Um, so, um, I guess, tell us about your current position. Like what type of patients, like pathology do you see? I feel feel like you kind of alluded to this already in your general answer, but like, and then like what type of practice type are you academic or are you more private practice or are you kind of a hybrid of that? Um, I guess, tell us a little bit about your, your current position. Sure. Sure. So, um, right now I work at a community hospital setting, and it's really part of the BJC Medical Group, which is a huge medical group in St. Louis, uh, part of the Washington health care system. And it's nice. We're all interconnected with the EMR called EPIC, which I'm sure a lot of the um, you know, medical students and residents who watch this and other professionals uh, know about. So everything's very interconnected. And we deal with all, type, you know, all patient populations, you know, privately pay uninsured patients, um, you know, we, we deal with a lot of kind of complicated medical patients as well, being in the you know, greater St. Louis area, as well as Illinois area as well. Um, and actually I'm going to be starting next week is I'm going to be one of the attendings. They have a new family medicine residency program, uh, through the, I think it's the SIU Southern Illinois university school of medicine. Um, so I'll be teaching some of their new residents. Um, and I'll probably do a hybrid one week I'm working, do community and then the other week be you know, the attending for them. And um, they're the first class of residents. Um, so they won't have any seniors. So I'll be kind of functioning as a senior. So, so I'm doing kind of a hybrid model. And um, so I'll be doing a little bit of both. And I think it's, it's you know, so that's kind of like my general practice model. I think it's hard. I, I don't see, at my institution, everyone's either, if you're a hospitalist, you work for a BJC, Barnes Jewish Community uh, Medical Group. Uh, but I think some of my colleagues might just do community, but I'll be doing that hybrid. So, no, that's awesome. So it seems like you kind of get the best of both worlds. You're in a community hospital, which is probably more traditionally like a private practice or private group setting. But then yes, yeah. through this affiliation you have with these with these different academic programs, you like you said, you get to kind of get the best of both worlds. Or maybe some weeks you're working just as a private group physician, yes. and, then, and then another as a as an academic physician. That's cool. Um, awesome. And I, I, as you know, I just finished my, my transitional year internship. So I did a lot of internal medicine. I guess one of the, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think one of the cool thing, you know, obviously I worked with a lot of hospitalist, uh, attendings that during that year, I I always thought the cool thing was that, I mean, hospitalists, you guys, you guys know a lot about a a lot of different areas of medicine. I mean, especially like the core, like, you know, you know, cardiology, GI, the, the, I mean, obviously you consult your, those consultants, but you know, you're able to manage those types of uh, pathology and diseases, you know, pretty, pretty well. And um, I think the breadth of knowledge of a hospice is very impressive to me, I think. Yeah, no, it's, I think definitely when you start residency, no matter what the field, but especially with medicine, very family medicine as well, just the general family or internal medicine. It's such a, you know, you have to know a little bit pieces of everything, how to handle it. I mean, and I think just even coming and attending over this past year, that just really, 
help deepen my understanding of just you know seeing complex cardiology cases, GI cases, nephrology cases. Myself, I'm more of nephrology interested. I always like the acid base and solving those equations. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you definitely yeah, you have to know what your limitations are. You have to know what your expertise is. I mean, I, I think as a hospitalist, it's very easy to think you know you might have all the grasp and all that information, but you know, yeah, you do with some very complicated patients. I mean, you could have a patient in cardiology who has a very complicated antiarrhythmic uh, regimen for the atrial fibrillation or a complex heart failure patient. And as much as you want to be able to handle all that at the same time, you got to know your role as a hospitalist is that it's all about continuity. You know, you, there's, so a lot of times what's nice in most healthcare systems, especially with BJC, is you have a lot of subspecialty support. So even though I do have a, you do have, you carry a knowledge of every field, Mm-hmm. Um, you, you remember that these patients are going to be seeing their specialist on discharge. So it's nice, you know, you may, you may, be able to, you may be able to get them out of acute decompensated heart failure. You can put them on diuretics, Lasix, right. but at the same time, you need to know, like, it's a, it's a coordination and, you know, it's nothing that you always have to keep their specialist in the loop. A lot of times you consult them because you want them to know what's going on with them and to prevent a rehospitalization. So as much as, you know, you know, you get to see a little bit of everything, pancreatitis, acute kidney injury, hematology. Um, you have to know what your skill set, you know, limitations are uh, just so, you know, especially for the welfare of the patient. Sure. Sure. And I think it, it sounds like from you telling me also, you know, that I think it's important for the listener to understand is that you do a lot, you're almost like the quarterback of the team. Like you do a lot of kind of coordinating all of uh, the patient's care, like you're responsible for all the aspects of, sure, the, sure. of the patient's care, like, um, you know, the involving consultants, and then also essentially like where they're going after, you know, making sure they're, they have a safe discharge and things like that as well. Oh, sure. And I, I, that's why I say when I always see patients, I always give them my card saying I'm your hospitalist. Mm-hmm. And the hospital, just because I have a last name, because my last name is Schreckman, mm-hmm. they just call me Dr. Jared. And that's true. I mean, that's what, it's just easier. I sure. tell them, you know, this is, yeah, because someone could have uncontrolled diabetes or someone could have, you know, an NSTEMI where, you know, their troponins went up or, um, you know, you're concerned about they need a cardiac cath. You get cardiology discussed with them or someone has a raging infection and you're not sure the duration of antibiotics, you have an infectious disease. But you always, that's, I think that's exactly it. You're the main gatekeeper. You admit them. You're following up with them. You're the potential discharge uh, physician mm-hmm. unless you're switching off service weeks with another hospital's provider. And so you really are um, making sure everyone is accounted for every system. So that's why our, our notes are you know, so comprehensive because we're kind of, um, you know, addressing every issue, so to speak. Sure, sure. You also, you mentioned that you do some consults as well. Is that like if, like if a surgery team, like if a surgeon does a surgery and they're kind of primary, the primary team on their patient, um, but they want, they have some type of general medicine issue that comes up is that, is that kind of what you're talking about there? Or? Yeah. So I've had some patients that, um, you know, that if they heard wheezing prior to them going to surgery, they would just want an acute evaluation, you know, and sometimes that can be very easy. You know, I, I've had people where they heard wheezing, but I got an x-ray, I got an EKG, everything was clear, but they were just a smoker and probably they likely had some underlying COPD, but, you know, managed appropriately with some NEBS and with anesthesia, but just, you know, because all the surgical consultants, I mean, you know, once they go further and further in the surgical field, just the basics of someone has chest pain. So it's a lot of bread and butter type things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have some, a lot of patients we get for preoperative evaluation. So you look at their cardiac history, look at their surgical history, look at their functional status, how active they are. And, um, uh, you know, just look at the elevated risk for surgery. They have all these different risk calculators, which a lot of times you learn throughout your training. And it ends up becoming a lot of bread and butter. Those are actually, those are fun patients because it's just a lot of times, you know, they're not as medically complicated, but if they're worried of the event, they have a significant coronary history and someone just had a stent a month ago, then I end up talking to cardiology saying, you know, can we hold their blood and, you know, things of that nature. So if it gets too kind of far-fetched, then we talk to um, their cardiologist saying maybe they need a more higher um, preoperative cardiac evaluation before uh, proceeding for surgery. Maybe the risk outweighs the benefit of the surgery at this time. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think, I think for, um, I'm just thinking through this as like, you're, we're talking about this. I feel like the personality type of a hospitalist is someone who's like, they like, 
being involved in everything and they like kind of having their hands in multiple different things. Would you say that versus like a specialist where they're like, like a cardiologist where they, all they want to do is focus on the heart. I guess, would would you say that's a fair description, I guess, of kind of the type of people that are attracted to doing hospitals medicine or. Yeah. So my father was a cardiologist and I used to all growing up want to be cardiology, but then he did hospital medicine. And the reason I got drawn to hospitals was exactly that. And it just kind of, it was solidified even more during my medical school rotations and residency. I didn't like one thing enough, like infectious disease, you know, you're the expert on antibiotic duration, stewardship, cardiology, AFib, CHF, but you have to really love that field because it's very narrow. That's all you do. I mean, versus hospitalists, I like to get a patient with pancreatitis or a GI bleed or patients who have, you know, very complicated hematological, can't figure out why they have thrombocytopenia or CHF or acute kidney injury, I can't figure out, mm-hmm. or, you know, complex, you know, COPD management. I just like the variety. I think medicine as a hospitalist, it's, it's a lot of puzzles, a lot of problem solving. And it, I think when I looked at it, when I did the specialty months, it became very monotonous for me, just focusing. Some people love cardiology and they want to do CHF or AFib all day or chest pain and cats. Some people like doing colonoscopies and upper, you know, upper scopes, EGDs all day. Myself, I just, I wanted, I needed a change in clinical decisions. I just, I, I couldn't get, you know, focused on, you know, seeing one thing all day. And I think also the thing about hospice medicine is I wasn't as much of a fan of the outpatient setting. Some people want the clinic. And I think that's very important. I like to focus on the acute setting. Because I think from a medicine standpoint, I think it's the most exciting. I think when you get have a patient admitted with acute CHF and you diurese them, they do much better. Or with pancreatitis, you know, this is examples. You they're in severe pain and you help them and you you know make sure they're getting enough adequate fluids. I think there's a lot of award when someone gets a lot better acutely. It's almost to me like hospital medicine is almost like being an ER physician without the level. I think as much of the acuity. Because by the time they left the ER, they're just on a much stable, but they still need to be hospitalized. Right. Um, and no, I think that I think that's what you have to ask yourself. If there's, if there's anything you love more than anything else that you could see yourself doing all day, including in the office, then you choose that specialty. But if you can't narrow it down and you can't see yourself doing one thing all day, one focus, then you have I think hospital medicine needs to be in your horizon and your uh, career focus. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Um, and I, th- I think what's really interesting is you, that you mentioned with like the inpatient versus the outpatient is maybe you don't get as much of the like, you know, I think one of the thing that may attract people to primary care is like they get a long term relationship with their patient, which you may not necessarily have. Right. Um, but I think on the flip side, you get the, the more instant gratification, like you said, of like bringing a patient out of decompensated heart failure, helping someone with acute pancreatitis, it's more of I guess like kind of like you see a problem and you fix it type thing than doing these kind of long-term continuity care, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of primary care physicians, when I talk to them, I think they do miss the inpatient setting. I think that, you know, primary care, obviously, you know, you do have the long-term, you know, them over time, but I think the inpatient setting, you still like, you know, when I'm there, that seven day threats, you know, you still, when you, in those three, four days, let's say you're with the patient, if they're hospitalized that long, you still, even though it's not as long as a long-term primary care, I do feel like you develop a relationship with them and their family, mm-hmm. because I feel like most, most patients right now understand when they go to the hospital, they see a hospital doctor. So I think I do see a lot of gratification from them that they understand our role is that we are trying to get them out of this acute setting and that they know we coordinate with their primary care physician. So I do think there is a bond and you know, a physician patient relationship that is very rewarding, even when you, you, you form with a hospitalized patient. Uh, but some people want, you know, months to years, which I respect as well. But I, I think that, you know, when you get someone out of a such a, you know, when they're very sick, mm-hmm. I, I think that's to me, that's just one of the most rewarding parts of medicine. So sure, sure. I think kind of going off that now, if you had you have a patient, uh, obviously, you know, I know this, but maybe some of the listeners may not is, is there some patients where you'll have them on the floor and they'll get too sick where you need to transfer them to ICU. And I, I guess hospitals don't typically do like ICU care, right? That would be someone who is, you know, did a fellowship in like critical care or pulmonary or pulmonology, critical care. Correct. 
Well, I, I, it kind of depends. So, I mean, it depends on the hospital. So mm-hmm. when there's, I think there's different three, three different tiers of kind of um, ICU level work for a hospital medicine doctor. If you go to a very rural setting where there's not a lot of physicians there, many hospitalists, if you go to a very rural where there's not critical care doctors, you look in the job setting, you'll be expected if you want to, you do that, you manage vents, you do central lines, you do thoracentesis. And even people a lot of times with a lot of locum tenens, which are pretty much temporary physicians in need for help, um, they will have you do those kind of procedures. Mm-hmm. But it's very advertised. It's very clear. That's like a very kind of, I mean, and that's because we can't get, can't get a primary uh, critical care doctor. Those aren't as common, but if you want those opportunities, they're out there. Mm-hmm. And they definitely pay more because, um, uh, you know, there's a need for those um, kind of special skill set. Sure. Um, I think there's, I think when the last position, this is kind of the second tier and there's a third tier. The second tier, I think is like a semi-open ICU. So the first one was a completely open where, you know, maybe there not be, may not be a critical care doctor in town. So you're running the show. Mm-hmm. A semi-open ICU is where I practiced before I came to St. Louis, which I like quite a bit, which was very exciting being a new graduate is you admit to the ICU. Mm-hmm. But once they're on events or on pressers, I don't manage any of that, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like the first tier where you're kind of running the show, functioning almost like as a critical care doctor because, it, you know, there's a need. This other one is once they're events, once they're on ventilator setting, once they're on pressers, the ICU, ICU doctor manages the show. But sometimes patients need to go to the ICU just because they need closer monitoring. And when I was at this private, uh, this other uh, uh, hospital system, I ran everything. So if they were not intubated, if they were not on pressors, I ran the cardiogram drip, I, which is, you know, for heart rate control, a pressed X drip if someone was severely, let's say, decompensating from delirium or, you know, alcoholism. So that was also a nice setting, too. I would also, I, if I needed the ICU doctor, I'd manage a lot of things. I think more and more they're becoming, we talked about the first tier, that second tier, the third tier mm-hmm. is where I am now, which I think is becoming more, um, of more hospitals nationwide from a quality care standpoint. That third tier is what they call a closed intensive care unit. And it, truthfully, it is more convenient. So when someone needs to go to the ICU, whether it's for, this is for anything in the ICU. So even if they're not intubated or sedated, let's say they need to go to ICU, just, you know, some people need to go to ICU, just they need closer monitoring. Sure. And they, they even as a step down mm-hmm. where I work, you know, it's a close. So the ICU doctor runs the show and, I think sometimes they've shown it's better outcomes because, you know, the ICU doctor manages everything. There's only one person putting orders mm-hmm. versus where I came before that second tier. You know, if it was me and the critical care doctor, there's two different doctors that could be on a case if someone's sure. not intubated or sedated. But this last one, anytime any of them go to the ICU, they take over care, they manage the patient, they bring them out. So that's where I work now. And, and it is more, I, th- I think it is looking back. I think, you know, when I started in a semi-open ICU, it was very beneficial for learning, but sure. it does make it much easier when the ICU doctor, these are very sick patients. It's, I, I think, even though you have a, a great training and experience, if they're in a step down status, if someone needs BiPAP or, you know, that, I think that's best managed long term by a critical care doctor um, before they get sick enough to need a ventilator. So I think, I think more healthcare systems, bottom line, are going to where I work, the closed ICU model where they, even if it's like a step down and they're not on life support and intubation or on pressures for blood pressure, they're managed solely in a step down unit by an ICU trained physician. A lot of times they're pulmonologists as well because they have the background training and mm-hmm. um, they are managing the show. And I think it is, it is definitely makes the work life more convenient for hospitalists, less emergencies. And that's what they're trained to do. And it also makes it easier for the nursing staff as well. I hope that kind of answers it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's very important. I, I didn't even, I kind of was aware of some of those differences, but those, I think that three sure. tiers is a great uh, explanation as well. Um, and then I think what's, I think important to know is, is off, I guess at your, at our hospital where I did my intern year, a lot of times where if when patients got better and they got transferred, usually they got transferred back to this, or they at least tried to transfer them back to the same hospital. Is that like when you would transfer your patients to the ICU and they get better and they have to go back to the regular medicine floor, they usually come back to you or somebody, or is it somebody else? Oh yeah. 99% of the time. The only thing is, you know, when you, when you, cause hospitals working seven on seven up, when you switch that off a week, oh, sure. it may fall to another hospitalist, but truthfully, 
I think our hospital does a phenomenal job. I think it's most institutions in terms of the continuity of care, in terms of a proper sign out from that ICU doctor. At a time when they're coming back from the ICU, you know, the ICU doctors manage them effectively where they're, you know, as long as the sign outs, you know, very effective and uh, they will be managed on the medical floor appropriately. Sure, sure. Awesome. Okay. Um, I think you've talked a little bit about this, but just to kind of um, dive a little bit more deeper, I guess, what's your, t- what's your schedule? Like you mentioned like the seven on seven off, maybe explain a little sure, bit of sure. like that. Is that, is that typical for a hospitalist or I guess, I think, I think you've even explained to me just in our, our, our own conversations, kind of the different schedules that hospitals can have, but maybe kind of lay out sure. that, that, that for, for the listeners. Sure. Sure. So it's hard to generalize, but I'd say at least 75% of hospital medicine schedules, probably almost pushing 80% nationwide are you work seven days straight and then you're off seven days. So for my schedule, I start on a Tuesday and I end the following Monday. So what happens is usually that Tuesday morning, I'll have a sign out email to me of let's say 18 patients. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. This needs to be followed up with. And what happens is that first day is always the hardest because it's 18 new people that, you know, it's my first time seeing them first time doing a physical exam, you know, first time, you know, patients are very sick patients that sometimes, you know, are ready to be discharged Mm -hmm. after a while. I'm very used to it. Um, But that's first day is always, and also the documentation, you try to do your notes a certain way and uh, have it kind of a, uh, broken down a certain way. So that's that first day. Um, you start off with so many patients. Sometimes mm-hmm. if you don't have a lot of patients, you'll have admissions. But I think our program does a great job is you know, a lot of times we, you know, we don't get as many admissions the first day, but that first day is always kind of the most tech because you're learning, you get an existing service of patients from another hospitalist who is signing off and you take over, learn the patients, get admissions and discharges. Um, I'd say starting the Wednesday, you know, say I start on Tuesday, that's always the busiest day. Usually most days, this is my, my institution. Um, and I think a lot of institutions follow this. Usually I leave, wake up at six, I drive 25 minutes. So I leave at like 6.20, 6.25. I get there around 6.50. I have a coffee and uh, I get my list. I probably start around seven, usually around 7 a.m. And this is just me. A lot of people, like, you know, I have the list for, from like usually 7 to 8 a.m. I'll read over every, all the patients. And you get quicker after a while. You know, I usually, I start reading their vitals. The, I usually, first off, I'll read the sign. I'll say a patient comes in with acute CHF and I'll read their vitals. I'll read their labs. I'll see if the hospital's rough. They think they're ready for discharge. Um, I'll read the past imaging. I'll, and I could do it pretty quickly at this point. So I do that for all those patients. Mm-hmm. Starting around 8 a.m., then I'll start rounding. And I'll first find the nurse and tell them, you know, this is the patient, I'm the new hospital's picking up service. Um, you know, what's the, and a lot, you know, your nurses, you, you know, they, they're with the patient, they're your biggest asset, you know, they're phenomenal at all places. And I think they have the hardest job in medicine. So you really want to have a very good relationship because a lot of times they've had the patient for days before. Uh, and they might say, well, no, he's still wheat, you know, still wheezy, has crackles, let's say that CHF patient. And, you know, then you examine them and I go, you know, I do all my patients. And everyone's different. Some people like to round, then do notes in between. I have a lot of colleagues who will round, do a few notes, round, do a few notes. I'm the type, I like to see everyone, talk to all the family members, then let's say by uh, 12, one o'clock, you know, then start to have lunch, do my notes the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Where I work most days, we get off at five. Every fourth day, someone stays till seven. We take calls from five, there's four of us. We take calls from five to 7 p.m. But that person who stays till 7 p.m. every fourth night, from 5 to 7 p.m. when they're in the house, they handle emergencies. So if it's 5.15 and I'm driving and there's an emergency that if I'm not there till 7 physically, the person who's there will handle the rapid response. Uh, most days I get home 5.30, but I can handle calls and any orders you could do on the computer till 7 p.m. But a lot of times I can go to the gym at 5.30. You know, I could do things from my phone. Everything's remote. Mm-hmm. After 7 p.m., you don't get any calls at all. There's a nocturnist. So most places have a nighttime physician where this is very nice versus other specialties, ER, your rotating nights. Most places have a, we'd call a nocturnist. They, they get admissions at night and they handle all emergencies. So I never get called in the middle of the night. And I always tell nurses they're more than happy to if they need, but it's just, there's, it's, there's someone in house. Right. Um, right. Wednesday and Thursday, it gets easier, but definitely once you get to Friday and Saturday, it gets much easier. Uh, Monday's not as bad because once, when you get, 
past the first two to three days, it's much easier because you know everyone, you know, and plus you're admitting your own patients a lot of times. So it's much sure. easier. I'd say when you get to the last two, three days, that Saturday, Sunday, Monday, it's much easier. And then Monday, I'm the, I'm the you know, um, messenger. You know, I do the sign out saying this patient came in with a GI bleed. GI is watching their hemoglobin. They're tentatively stable for tomorrow. Uh, and I'm very fortunate. I have a phenomenal group of colleagues who do great sign outs, very continuity care. Um, like their notes are very efficient. And then once you're off, so I was started off on Monday. So Tuesday, you know, then you're just, you know, your time's free. I mean, once you're off, I mean, there's occasionally some things I look up, I do some CME, but once you're off completely, and this is kind of a new schedule, I, it took me some time to get used to is that, you know, you get used to being in a very regimented schedule in medical school where your weekends, you're not truly weekends, you're studying. There's work to be always residency. You work six out of seven days a week and then you have the one day off. Now it's, it's even sometimes it takes me to get used to, you know, to occupy that free time. I mean, I'm not married, I don't have kids. So I understand people are families that it's very easy for that time to be occupied. But a lot of people, if you're finishing residency, it's, you know, um, it's just you, it's, you know, you just, you find different hobbies and things and, but it's nice to have that time off. It's nice to have that freedom. You can always pick up shifts at well, but I really, um, you know, value that time. So those seven days off, you're free. It's just, I think hospital medicine um, has the best schedule of medicine. I think I've never, you know, when you do the math, um, I think I did the math one time, even if you were working 12 hour days, seven days a week, even though, you know, like I said, I work 10, 10, 10, and then a 12 hour because every day is seven to five, except that fourth day. Sure. Um, I mean, you do the your math, you work 72 hours every other week. That adds up to 36 hours a week when, you know, 72 every other week, that's 36 hours a week. I mean, I really, and, and when I leave at five, I might get a call or two, you know, but I pick up the phone, but it's not like I'm doing notes. I always finish my notes before I'm done. Mm -hmm. I think that's important medicine to try to get your documentation. So when I leave, I might put an order or two. I've had an emergency where I had to transfer someone. It took me 10, 15 minutes to do things on the phone. I might've had to log in and type a quick note, but I think that's a benefit of hospital. A lot of physicians, if you do it well, finish your notes while you're there. Sure. And yeah, and I think that's important quality of life. I think there's a great quality of life with hospital medicine. Um, I think it's just, I, I think that we'll have to see with time, but and I know it's sometimes an untraditional schedule because you're off every other weekend. But even the weekends I'm, you know, I work, you know, I get there at seven. Some days I can leave at four, you know, so I mean, still have the night ahead. Um, and I think it's just a great kind of life balance. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like ER in the sense that it's, it's like shift work. Like you do your, like when you're on, you're on. And then, like you said, like you have a night and that's essentially another aspect of hospitalist medicine, right? Is like a nocturnist who they yeah. don't, they only cover it. They only cover nights. Like they'll go seven nights in a row and then seven days off. Correct. Yeah, and I think nights, yeah, that's a, that's a nocturnist is like essentially a hospitalist physician that just works at night. And I I think the hard thing, I actually considered it because nocturnists probably make, I'm going to probably say 20 to 25%, maybe in a 20% more, uh, you know, I'd say than a uh, hospitalist physician. So, mm -hmm. so they definitely can make, I mean, that's, you know, that's definitely, you know, definitely I mean, 20 to 25% more can add up. But you know, I, I think the thing that, you know, my father was a nocturnist and I saw how physically difficult it was for him. And I think nocturnist medicine, you got to really love nights mm -hmm. because I think someone once told me this, it's like you're, op you're operating against gravity. Some people love it. Some people love nights. There's a lot of benefits to nights. You know, you don't have to deal with the discharges, you know, you know, a lot of times, you know, as much as we love family members, it's, it's always a pleasure to interact with them. You know, a lot of times at nights, you're just focusing straight on seeing the patient admitting them. You just do admissions. Admissions are much easier to do than follow-ups. You focus on the admission. There's more revenue. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy sleep cycle. I've seen that when you do seven straight nights, you got to remember when you work, you know, when you work nights, they don't get the 10 hour breaks. I do. They're working 7 a.m. 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. It's not like it's a 12 hours. And sure. when they go to bed, you know, I think most people see when you work nights, you can try to go to bed, let's say at 8 a.m. after that shift, you may wake up at 12 p.m. and then go take another nap. It's just, it's not a very natural, being up at night's not natural. Some people love it. Me, it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to as much to sleep. And then I noticed when I tried it my week off, it took me more days to just get adjusted and then I was back in the swing. 
So I, I think if you like nights, then you do it. But some people, you know, I just think I just wanted a little bit normalcy. And then I'm along the road when I have a family, it would be more conducive to have a daytime schedule. Sure, sure. I guess go, going a little bit back um, to like the when you were in medical school, I guess, you know, as long as I've known you, you've always, I think, been, as you mentioned earlier, been very interested in hospitals, I guess. What kind of, and I think you've answered this a little bit already, but like when you were going through your third year rotations, like what, what made you, you know, want to do internal medicine for sure? Like versus, sure, sure. you know, like surgery or ER or, or anything, anything else out there? Sure, sure. So I, I knew that my father was a cardiologist. I mean, 10 years ago, I was looking at cardiology because he had a practice, but then he closed his solo practice moving to Naples. And I really made me key on hospitalist because there was something about, I knew when he had a private practice, as much as I liked working with him in his office, I knew clinic just, it just didn't appeal to me as much as it just didn't. I always liked shadowing him in the hospital. I thought it was so cool to be in the hospital. I thought that's where all the excitement, that's where all the, you interact with the social workers, the nurses, the physical therapists, you see everyone. Mm-hmm. I, I thought office was just too monotonous for me. That's just for me. Sure. Um, but when my rotations were keyed it in is, like I said, I liked internal medicine because you see the variety. The reason, you know, talking about, you know, when we talked about the other specialties, we talked about how I just didn't want to narrow on a cardiology. It was just too narrow for me. I was scope GI, nephrology, mm-hmm. versus I get a piece of it. But the other thing that versus the other fields, I'm this, I think the thing about hospital medicine is as most hospitals at most places nationwide, um, you just, you don't do the procedures. So mm-hmm. if you're someone who likes procedures, I would say that you will not get that with hospital medicine. You do have some places and some rural settings where you can work in a rural community, or there are some hospitals, not many, but some institutions where they will credential you to do central lines, mm-hmm. intubations. But usually most places, are, it's more evolving towards the critical care. And even with, you know, um, you know, that's why I think people like emergency medicine, they like doing central lines, procedures, intubations. Um, but a lot of hospitals nationwide and a lot of hospitalist jobs, I say many of them, um, a lot of codes are run by the emergency room physicians. Not saying we can't run codes, but I think it's easier for the ER a lot of times if they need to intubate the patient, put a line in. Um, but I think that, you know, so if you want procedures, I think that's why people do cardiology, GI, mm-hmm. um, sometimes nephrology, if they need to have some catheters and lines in. Um, I, I knew it myself. I, I was not into procedures. So surgery was all about. I liked to be gone, but I didn't, I wasn't into as much surgeries. Uh, the reason I didn't do family medicine versus internal was family medicine. I wanted a very strong inpatient base family medicine. A lot of my colleagues are family medicine. They're phenomenal hospitalists, but i also didn't want to do as much clinic versus I didn't want to do rotations during residency of like OB gyne pediatrics, Sure. Uh, procedures, injections. I just really wanted to focus on hospital medicine. I thought having a good inpatient program was the key. You know, I did some procedures here and there, but I, it's different in residency because I knew I wasn't going to do them long term. Um, but I think that's why I said, I think that procedures is a big aspect. I think anything you got to ask yourself, do you want to do procedures? I mean, there's dermatology, surgical, ENT, opto. If you don't want to do procedures, then I think you need to consider um, the general primary care outpatient pediatrics or inpatient pediatrics if you want to be with kids. I didn't want to be with kids. I wanted to be mostly adults. So that's why if I didn't want to do procedures, it was either pediatrics or internal um, or family med. But then I was like, I didn't want, you know, I just want to treat mainly adults. That's where internal medicine just kind of fit um, in the scheme. Nice. I think that's an excellent breakdown of like how you kind of looked at what you wanted out of your career and kind of then kind of helped it, used it to help you essentially eliminate different sure, choices. Sure. And I think, you know, one of the previous episodes, you know, we talked with our friend, uh, Harry, Dr. Harry Watsu DePaul, who's, Dr. Uh, Watsu, was, yes. yeah, was a, uh, was a hospital medicine attending and now is a anesthesia resident. Um, we talked in that episode, you can check it out. It's all dedicated to how you pick your specialty. And I, I think you hit on a lot of things we talked about in there is kind of figuring out what you want from your career, Knowing and like knowing yourself, like you said, you, you knew you liked general medicine. You you didn't know necessarily, you know, want to dive in deep on one particular aspect. You knew you didn't 
want to do procedures, which is totally fine. Um, and you know, you've, uh, you've found hospitals medicine kind of really fit with all those different, you know, wants and things you wanted and things you didn't want it as well. Um, which I think is, is just awesome. Um, so I think, um, for med students who, you know, they do their medicine rotation, they really like it. They think they want to do internal medicine. Maybe they want to do hospitals. Maybe they want to do some subspecialty. They're not sure. Um, I guess, what's your advice on that? Maybe wait till they go to residency. Cause I imagine your decision to do hospitals was probably further confirmed when you got, you know, into residency and kind of, like you said, rotated on GI and nephro and some of those other things. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very tricky. Um, It's, it's, it's always hard because medical schools are very, I think medical schools are getting more. um, I think they're better at this. I think even when we went, I don't think they had as much clinical training up front. I think now they are doing a better job getting more the medical students in the clinical environment, you know, and I think that's important because I think you just need to see, mm-hmm. I think you need to be exposed. I mean, I think that's the key. I think that's the biggest difficulty with medical school. When, when we went, sure. as I'm sure Dr. Wasser can adjust, you know, attest to, and I give him a tremendous amount of credit, um, is when you need to be seeing things up front, earlier, better than later, you have to be exposed. If you're not exposed, you're not going to know, uh, you know, radiology wasn't for me, for instance, I wasn't as into the anatomy aspect. That's just not my forte, but I did a rotation. I knew that, but there are a lot of things about it doing internal medicine. Um, you know, let's say I like procedures, but I became, um, you know, ophthalmology. Why do I know if I didn't like ENT, you know I mean? This is, I think the, the biggest thing I would say is if you know, you don't like procedures and you like treating patients in the hospital, hospitalist is a great route to look at. But I think at the flip side of it, if you're still kind of, let's say if you're indecisive, you're not 100% sure, shadow, get experience. That's the key. Mm-hmm. See what a daily life, see, you got to see what a gastroenterologist, what clinic looks like with the inpatient setting. That's what you need to see. I think that's the hardest part of medical school is really narrowing down. I mean, that's, that's by far, and I think, I think they're doing a better job because they're having people up front more. Uh, earlier, you know, in their medical school training during their, maybe hopefully at least even as early as first year, uh, doing these rotations and seeing what, you know, the field is like, so to speak. I think that's, I mean, I, I feel, I felt for colleagues who still, you know, middle of the third year weren't really sure, but I think, like I said, thankfully a lot of these new graduates, they're in well, a lot of these medical training programs is they're getting their feet wet early. Um, and like I said, I think, like I said, ultimately you got to figure out if, you want to do procedures. If you like being hands-on, you got to look at things hands-on. Do you like being in the hospital? I knew myself, like I said, I know I'm just kind of reiterating the same point is I didn't like procedures. I like being in the hospital. So then narrow it down. But if you're unsure, if you like doing procedures, but you're not sure which kind, you got to you gotta sh- you gotta shadow a gastroenterologist. See, do you like doing those kind of procedures or do you like doing more invasive surgical? Because there's a difference between doing a procedure and doing something like surgery, there's a, there's definitely a difference. They're both, sure. you know, so associated with risks. So I would definitely say, see what you want to do. And you have to always remember too, if let's say you want to be a cardiologist or gastroenterologist, unfortunately, we're not at the point in the medical graduate education uh, program in terms of kind of their training programs where there's a direct route to gastroenterology. There's a direct route to cardiology versus vascular surgery, plastic surgery, thoracic, there's integrated programs. So you have to know that, you know, it is competitive. It is very competitive. I mean, I've had, I've had, you know, keep in mind, I, I've had my, in my program, uh, we had a person get into gastroenterology right out of residency, which was phenomenal, mm-hmm. um, as well as critical care. But cardiology, I've had I, I had a close friend of mine had to do a research here and a, a chief here. So some of these fields, if, you know, it is, it is a struggle. It's not easy. I'm not saying don't pursue your dreams. Just know that some people, you know, they could do an internal medicine residency as a means to get to cardiology, which is nothing wrong with that. You want to go for your dream. That's what you deserve. And that's what you want to pursue. Uh, you got to go for your passion, but it's just, and unfortunately sometimes it's not as easy as just applying your third year and getting into it. Uh, but I think that, you know, at the same time, I've had people, many people be successful. They knew they wanted to do GI from training and they, uh, from medical school, when in my class, 
and they were able to pursue it and get into it. But mm -hmm. I think that's the bottom line, Max, is that you have to think what kind of doctor you want to be. Do you just want to be in the office? Do you want to be more hands-on? Do you want to be hands-on? Do you want to do more surgical? Do you want to do more procedures, catheter-based, and that type of thing? And you can still get a lot of satisfaction from doing those interventional procedures. I think, like I said, for instance, what you do going for like, um, you know, interventional radiology, I, all of them seem very happy. I think there's a very mm -hmm. good quality of life and they love doing their procedures all day. Yeah. Um, but I think the bottom line is get your feet wet early, get exposed. That's the most important thing you do in medical school, because when you choose a field, uh, you're choosing it for the long haul and you got to really love what you do. Yeah, no, I think those are, those are all really excellent points. Um, and I think it's a good point to make that, you know, because I see, you know, I, I, you know, rotating a year in the internal medicine department, I have a lot of friends in the medicine residency here at Emory. And as you know, Emory is a, it's a powerhouse for cardiology. So a lot of the, sure. know, a lot of the medicine residents come here specifically to do cardiology or to help them match into a cardiology fellowship. And I think that's an important point you make is that, you know, that rat race of trying to get into residency that you're in when you're a medical student, um, that doesn't end if you want to do cardi uh, something like cardiology or GI, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe GI is the most competitive fellowship to get into. And then cardiology is right there below it as far as the medicine clerkship or fellowships go. So like when you get into residency, it's not like, oh, you can just hang out and just kind of learn and do your thing. Like these guys, like I see them, like they have to do a lot of research. They have to get involved uh, early. They have to uh, make sure their names are on papers and publications and try to present at meetings and things like that. So it's that whole race does, if you want to do those types of things and even even like hematology oncology from what i understand is getting considerably more competitive now too like that whole race doesn't end when you get to medicine residency if, if, if i feel like from what you're saying with some of your colleagues that you've seen the same type of thing oh yeah definitely i mean you have to remember it's just exactly to get into cardiology i mean it's when you apply for fellowship it's like you're applying for residency over again you're not you know it's you're competing with everyone. You mean competing with, you know, people or many food and residency is difficult in that regard because it was busy enough, but to try to get publications and research and do special rotations, it's very competitive. And let's say you get into cardiology, you know, let's say you want to be an interventional cardiologist. That's also competitive because then you're competing with all the other cardiology fellows. So, but if it's your passion, you know, I know these people, they love what they do. And, um, but you got to know it's, it's, it's definitely easier. Once I knew I got internal medicine residency, the biggest challenge I knew was just to pass the boards, but it was different because I knew that I could go where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as long as, you know, you maintain good standing. It is, it's hard. I mean, I, you know, I see my colleagues who do fellowship, they enjoy it, but that's what you have to know is, you know, even though in the scheme of things, three years is a small amount of time when you want to do, you know, because all these specialists, they seem very happy with what they do. So I know they made the right decision, but you have to know for yourself is, is that something you want to do is some people are not content just doing hospital medicine, which is fine. I mean, uh, some people think of it like it's an extension of residency, which I don't blame them. You, you're, you're essentially the house staff. Mm -hmm. But with me, it's, I think the thing I made up for was the amount of time off. The, you do get much more respect as an attending. You do, um, you know, you're definitely more, a higher echelon. Um, and obviously your knowledge base is better. But some people, you know, they wanted to be the consultant where they could sign up a case, not have to worry about discharge planning and focus on one issue. Uh, but yeah, I think going back to your question, it's definitely once you go, you know, you go into internal medicine residency, it starts day one of trying to get into GI fellowship, endocrine fellowship. Uh, especially, I'd say the top ports are gastroenterology, cardiology, probably palm and crick care, and then hematology, oncology. Those are the top four. Uh, I think that consistently fill up their slots every year. Okay. That's good to know. I, th I think when, uh, so let's say you're an internal medicine resident and you've decided you want to do hospice medicine, I guess, what's your advice for those people? Like what's, what's a good way for them to get the most out of their three years as an internal medicine resident to make sure they're like in a good position to be, you know, be a good hospice attending. I, I think what I would say is, have a very good differential diagnosis for everything. I think what I would do is I'd end up making these cheat sheets for myself and my colleagues would use them. You want to have a good, you want to, you want to have a good resource that you can use for everything because you can't remember everything off the top of your head. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. Over time, you know, your, your knowledge deep, deepens and it is easier to just, uh, you know, think of things off the top of your head. What I would do is um, I'd always have a good kind of resource on my hand. I have like an Excel 
a Microsoft Word document I have saved in my phone, if someone has acute confusion, I have a differential. If there's anything weird I can't think of, and if I worked up the common things, mm-hmm. I have it. I have treatment plans. I think that's the key is I try to do as many inpatient rotations as possible. Now, I'm not saying the outpatient are not important. I think they're very important as a hospital medicine doctor. But I think to try to do as many inpatient rotations as you can to get as experience. I think the more you see on an inpatient level, you get more comfortable. Um, I, I think, and by the same time, I think just making the most of every rotation. I think, I think I've learned the most. I think you learn the most from being a starting your residency to being an intern and an intern year. But I think after that, you learn the most from uh, being as an attending. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of going back. I don't know if something truly prepares you. I think just make sure to work as hard as you can. Make mm-hmm. sure to know, have a, have an understanding of as the common conditions you see in every field. Mm-hmm. Cardiology, CHF, AFib, chest pain, GI bleeds for GI, pancreatitis, colitis, um, nephrology, the hyperkalemia, high K, acute kidney injury. Have a good understanding of all the processes. If you don't know what to do, Look, you know, have a place to look up, such as on an application on your phone, up to date. Um, but I think, truthfully, the best way, I think that's the biggest thing is to know, you know, as much as you can. But I think a critical care attending told me once, sometimes when you're a new graduate, I think this is maybe this is for anything, but I think especially medicine is that just make sure you know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, know what your limitations are. Know there's always help. That's been my biggest thing, even as a first year, even though I was an attending. And I still, if I don't know something, I, I have a very low threshold to ask for help. That's why there's consultants. That's why there's ID. That's why there's GI. So I think as a hospital medicine doctor, the best thing is know as much as you can, but know your limitations. And if you don't know, seek help, ask colleagues. I, I still ask people from residency questions to this day. I ask other, uh, I ask my director questions. I ask other colleagues um, we're always learning from each other. And I think that you should just always have an open mind. I mean, at the end of the day, we're taking care of patients and families and people's lives. And um, I, I just, there's, I have a low threshold and ask the nurses, ask everyone, ask, yes, I ask physical therapy questions. I ask the nursing directors, I ask pharmacy. It's, I, and I think one my final thought is kind of circling back is hospital medicine is a team. That's being a hospitalist is being a part of a team. Mm-hmm. You might be the quarterback, we need people to throw the ball to. So I think it's that you get to have a great relationship with the nurses, the physical therapists, the social workers, the pharmacists, the respiratory therapists, the consultants, talking to the patient's families. You're a part of a treatment team. Mm-hmm. So I think as a hospitalist, I think in order to be successful, one of the other things during residency is how to operate in a unit. Um, because if you do not interact well with any of those disciplines, you will not do a good job, especially for the patient. Hospital medicine is a part of a team and they will really, it will make your, that's I think the best part of hospital medicine um, is you're interacting with so many disciplines. It's a, it's a really, you're putting the pieces together about someone's diagnosis, but you get to interact with all these specialties and people. And um, I think that's the best part is the multidisciplinary care in a hospital setting. Nice, nice. And I assume you, when you say inpatient, rotations you you not only mean like inpatient general medicine wards but also like inpatient cardiology inpatient infectious disease like inpatient nephrology um just to even i would imagine even as a hospitalist that would be valuable just to see that their side of things their viewpoint like so that when you call them as a hospitalist you already know like what they want or what they're looking for what are the kind of questions they're going to ask uh i would assume oh that's a great point you make a very good point there um yeah because one of the big parts being a hospitalist is Whenever a consultant wants, you know, a consultant wants to know that you've thought about things. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you could do as a hospitalist, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen. I'm sure it's happened from time to time for me if I got busy or it was a crazy day. But even then, you want to always have a question. You don't want to tell a, a, a nephrologist, I have a patient with acute kidney injury. This is the console. No, you want to say, you know, I have a patient whose kidney function's worse. This is what they were before. Um, this is what I think is causing it. I've ruled out these things. I've done a bladder scan. I've given them fluids. I'm kind of stuck. They want to know you've thought about it. That's your job as a hospitalist to put some thought. If someone has difficult to control CHF, I've tried this diuretic. I think this is what's putting them in a CHF. 
the biggest thing you, as a, a consultant will never, you want them to respect you and they want, they want to know you've thought about it. You've tried something and some things are just out of your realm, which is fine, but you just, you never want to consult a specialist. And I think that's what I learned on the, the biggest thing I learned from specialty rotations is not only just deepening my knowledge of certain fields. I did a lot of nephrology and uh, cardiology and ID, but you want to have a question and you want to have a legitimate question. And, you know, maybe for them, it's something easy for you. It might be something hard, but at least you've thought about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, I think that's the main thing is, and that's the best part of medicine is as a, when you consult a specialist, 99% of the time, unless they're in clinic, I will always call them over the phone. If I can, we have like a, a secure app that's HIPAA compliant. You mm-hmm. always want to have a direct physician to physician communication with the consultant. Tom, what your thought process is, whether it's a secure app or if you have a chance to call them, because they'll appreciate it. They'll mm-hmm. say, you know, I've talked to GI, we have a very great GI doctor who said, their hemoglobin is this, they were having melanin. They've had their last colonoscopy this many years ago and they take ibuprofen every day. They want to know you've done your homework. Right. Uh, because that's your job as a hospitalist. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, and it just, you also want that mutual respect from a collegiate level. Um, but I think that's looking back, I might forget some of the finer details of some rotations because, you know, I, I don't do cardiology all the time, but the main thing is they, you want to have an appropriate clinical question. It might be something easy for them, but they want to know, they want to know you've thought about it instead of just saying, you know, they're in CHF, here's the console. Sure. No, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and I guess what made me think of that too, is, you know, just finishing my intern year, I think it's, you know, even though, me, you know, general medicine wasn't what I want to do. I'm glad I, I'm glad they make us do that year because I get to see your guys' side of it. Like when you order imaging, why are you, why are you ordering imaging? Why do you want this? Or if you consult interventional radiology for a procedure in the hospital, like what, you know, what are you looking for? What have you probably already tried? Like you said, what you've already tried, what you've already done. Um, and then just even getting, you know, that basic medical knowledge, how to handle basic, you know, medical things like blood pressure and things like that, um, I think are important. So, yeah, I think getting also, to, yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean to I'd also mention you talked from a radiology aspect. You know, you always try to look at your own imaging. I mean, like x-rays as a hospitalist, you should read every x-ray. And you know, I mean, at some point, you know, throughout residency, you know what pneumothorax, you know what a pneumonia with CHF, chest CTs, I try to read as well. Abdominal imaging, I can't say I'm the best. I mean, you just you just don't do it all the time. But the, definitely the thoracic, the x-rays, I always read. My, I read my EKGs. Mm-hmm. I read my own chest CTs. But if I don't know something, you know, I call radiology all the time. I pick their brain saying, hey, can you look over this image again? This is what I'm looking for. I talk to IR. Um, you know, it's definitely, you know, we definitely talk to radiology and they call me all the time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely, you know, we interact with those specialties too. That's awesome. Awesome. Um, so I think just kind of wrapping things up here. So you mentioned that, you know, you have, you're on this seven off, seven on schedule. Um, I guess just for people considering the career, like what's the general, like you're essentially working half the month, which is awesome, which is great lifestyle. What's like the, I guess, salary. I realize it's like very variable, probably where you are in the sure, country, sure, what sure. type of hospital. Say, but like, what's kind of like the like range you've seen of, of salaries out there. And obviously it probably depends. Like you mentioned those jobs that maybe have some more critical care responsibilities. They may be a higher um, salary is, you know, in those scenarios. Sure. Sure. I think the range I've seen coming from Florida to, Midwest. I think a lot of them, you could range from like, I guess, uh, um, I think total, you got to ask yourself, I guess, total salary. So what's nice about being a hospitalist is when you work for someone, when I talk about like salary, this is separate from malpractice they're paying for mm-hmm. healthcare benefits and things like that. So I think from a total take home, I think a total compensation, most physicians, if you're doing strictly every other week, mm-hmm. you could see between 230,000, and 300,000. That's just working every other week. Keep in mind, if you pick up shifts, some people have production models. I think, you know, there's some places where it's 230,000 to 300,000 every other week, just working half the year, which is phenomenal. But then some institutions, there's, there could be, you know, a production component where you see so many patients and you can make over 300,000. I've seen some hospitals making the mid threes and or high threes because they, they pick up so many shifts. Sure. So, I mean, so some people like to work 25, 26 days in a month. I can imagine they're making 400, $425,000, but a lot of people do hospitalists, even if they're making 260, 270, 
they're off every other week and like that time off. Uh, but some places also have a component, even if you're just making, let's say you make 250,000, some places have a quality bonus. If you meet certain metrics, you can make an extra 20, 30,000. So I think, I mean, I think the average, when I factor that, and I think about 260, 270 is the total for everything, including that bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think it also, like you said, depends if you're going to a major city, it's probably a little bit less. If you're going to less, you know, more, um, more in demand, but you definitely can do very well and have a great quality of life and time off without having to worry about the extra headaches of a private practice. Yeah, definitely. And I imagine on the academic side, some people probably use that time off maybe to do research or uh, maybe get more involved in like, you know, residency leadership or, or like sure, sure. T- or teaching medical students or things like that. Maybe they, they use that extra time to kind of pursue other academic interests of, or professional interests, uh, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at times, I'm still kind of tossing it back and forth to look at an MBA, but I mean, because you have the time off. I mean, there's things right. to do. You have time off to do things. So it's definitely something you can you know look up and have time for. So um, yeah, I do have a few colleagues, my medical director, she does administrative days. My other colleagues just like to time off with their spouses and families. Uh, but I do, then I have other colleagues to pick up shifts. I do know someone who did pursue an MBA as well. I'm saying there's definitely time off. I mean, when you, you know, you do the math, I mean, it, it averages out. I mean, when you work, you know, 14 days, it averages out essentially like, you know, probably, you know, two almost, you know, it's 14 days every, I mean, the average person works five days and two days weekend, five days, two weekends. So instead of working 20 days, you work 14 days, which is essentially two weeks and four out of five days a week. So there's plenty of time off to do things. Sure. Um, so it's definitely, I'm still trying to figure out what to do too. So uh, I'll let you know when I, when I find besides hobbies. So nice. Yeah. And I guess going kind of closing things up here, we ask every, every guest this, what, so since, you know, you bring up free time, what do you, when you're not in the hospital, what, what type of things do you do in your free time? How, what are you doing these days? Sure. Sure. So I'm really involved in the Jewish community here. So I really go to synagogue here, a lot of Jewish functions. Uh, What's funny is right after this, I'll probably go swimming. We have like a pool in our complex. Nice, uh, nice. I'll probably call you from there right after this. Uh, <laughs> no, so not just going swimming, trying to work out. I, th- I think that's the thing with hospital medicine is that if you're not married, you don't have kids, you got to just, you got to make sure you keep busy because, you know, you go from being a very regimented medical school and college and medical school and residency and you just, you know, seven days is a lot of time off, which I think is a great amount of time. But I think you just, you got to, um, you really got to know how to balance it because, it's a lot of time off. I mean, what I've been trying to do is to wake up, work out every morning, run errands, go to the gym. Uh, I mean, work out, run errands, uh, you know, clean out my place. It just, you know, but sometimes I pick up a shift here and there because after a while, you know, your mind, I mean, that's why, you know, I think as physicians, you always like, you see a lot of physicians work late in their careers because it's a passion, it's a hobby. So I think besides, you know, this, you know, I just work out every morning, do the errands, um, hang out with some buddies, uh, maybe catch a movie or something like that. Um, try to do some my own medical reading and that type of thing. It's really kind of a schedule. Um, it's uh, the best time is when you get close to the weekend, because you know when you when you're off in the middle of the week, a lot of people are kind of working. So sure. that's that's you want to keep busy as then because the weekend everyone's pretty much off. Sure. Um, sure. Um, so yeah, that's usually. And I mean, we we talk a lot as well, and um, I try to do some investing, other things on the side, and I mean. My sister's pregnant, so I've been, you know, visiting her from time to time. And, um, yeah, it's just so just – it's weird. You know, you go all these years, you know, they always, you know, said during medical school and residency, but I've been working out more than ever just because I have the time free. Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of different, you know, when you have so many weekends dedicated to actually have time off, especially in medicine residency. Like, you work six out of seven days a week, so you have that one day to sleep. Now that's that one day. There's so much more time to recuperate. So Nice, nice. Well, that's awesome. Um, I think Jared, we just, uh, you gave a lot of great, um, insight into your, into a career as a hospitalist. And I think things for the med students, especially the medical student listeners and the internal medicine resident, uh, listeners out there as well to, to think about. And I think gave just anyone listening a, a good insight into what it's like to be a hospitalist, what types of, um, you know, what your typical day is like and what responsibilities you have. And, uh, so I want to just thank you again for coming on the, coming on the show and, uh, giving us your insight. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Max. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, like you said, if you have any questions, you can email me. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. 
More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as eBooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.